hppodcraft.com. Welcome to the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com with hosts Chris Blackie and Chad Pfeiffer. This week we continue our coverage of The Dreams in the Witch House by HP Lovecraft with guest host Ken Height and reader Dave Stinton. There's this other character they introduce here, the superstitious loom fixer, Joe Mazurowitz. Yes. He's always down there drunk and praying, and uh, and he, he's he got, sounds like a Joe Mazurowitz, Chicago PD, you know? He's got one of those great <laughs> names. Uh, well, there's a lot of Polish guys that live in this house, isn't it? Isn't the landlord also Polish? I think so, yeah. Joe knows about the, the stories, and he's heard the noises, and he's knows about the children missing, and, and he thinks that bad things are afoot in this house. So he's always praying. He's got the crucifix, and he's always rubbing it, and, and that's kind of a common thing throughout the story. You kind of keep... In the background, you hear him chanting over and over again. Yeah. Pretty obsessively. The superstitious town person, really. Is yeah. What he is, you know. But I did like how they say that May Eve, it's always a bad time in Arkham. It's always a very bad time. Kids are missing. Strange things are afoot. Unsolved child disappearances have been happening for as long as people can remember in Arkham. <laughs> wow. Strange. Well, you know, actually, finally, Gilman goes to the doctor. Yes, he does. Uh, and, the, and the doctor says, oh, your fever's not so bad. It's not a big deal. But I want you to go see this nerve specialist. And he goes, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, I'll, maybe I'll get around to going to see uh, <laughs> right. see some uh, nerve specialist. I don't know. You know, I've got stuff to do. I'm doing some formula and stuff. Well, he's getting a clearer picture of the witch in his in his dreams. He talks about her bent back, her long nose, her shriveled chin, and the expression on her face, hideous malevolence and exultation. She's starting to tell him he must meet the black man and go with she and the black man and, and the rat to the throne of Azathoth at the center of ultimate chaos and sign in his own blood the Book of Azathoth and take a secret name. So all of, it's, it's a weird blending of what the witches supposedly have been doing during the witchcraft trials. And this Cthulhu Mythos thing, right? Yeah. And this is straight from uh, the, the Dream's Quest of Unknown Kadath, where uh, Nyarl Athotep was wanted to take uh, Randolph Carter to Azathoth. That was like his whole big plan, remember? And this is what some people don't like about the story, is that they're, this melding of traditional sort of Christian scare stuff with the mythos stuff, which should be a-religious to an extent, right? Certainly that's, uh, that's one of Joshi's objections to it. But again... Part of what Lovecraft is doing with with the Cthulhu mythos is saying that the Cthulhu mythos lies behind every human religion, every human science, every human belief is actually some distorted version of the Cthulhu mythos. And that's true also of Christian superstitions about witches, and it's true of what Lovecraft believed based on, at that time, current anthropological research, the actual witches believed. I mean, Margaret the, Lovecraft is writing this while Margaret Murray is enjoying her brief window right. of plausibility as a uh, actual historian of witchcraft, mm-hmm. and her argument that there was a genuine witch religion, that it was the survival of of uh, ancient paganism, and that it engaged in uh, centuries of subversive activities against the Catholic Church, mm-hmm. was you know at least it, it was not as ridiculous then as it as it is to us in the light of. Uh, more historical research and more uh, and, and more knowledge of, of how the witch uh, cults actually operated. To say that the mythos is behind everything except Christianity or the Christian uh, lore and Christian superstition isn't reflected in the mythos is actually uh, to say that would be privileging Christianity in a way that Lovecraft would certainly never have done. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, you know, I was thinking of Alan Moore's comic The Courtyard. That's the name of it, right? The mythos yeah, yeah. thing? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, how in that the mythos knowledge is sort of transferred in seedy drug dealings after a rock show. And, and my reading is that here it's 
you know, the mythos, as Ken says, is always lingering there. But because we're stupid humans, you know, we filter it through whatever our understanding of the world is. So it could be Christian uh, fears or ghost stories. It could be seedy drug dealings and back alleys. But it's always kind of based on the same festering evil in the center of the whole universe. And Keziah, as a character, you know, she would be seeing a black man in the woods and probably still fear symbols of Christianity because her view of the world would be a 17th century, probably uneducated woman's view. She's driven to gain power through forbidden means, but that's going to be framed in the Judeo-Christian yeah. tradition of her and, people, right? And also, she's from a, a world where where Christians would kill witches. You know, they would hunt them down and kill them, or even people that were supposedly witches. So exactly. they were dangerous. I mean, really, really dangerous. And I don't mean to sound religious myself, but far be it for me to wonder at the motives of Lovecraft's gods, what they do, how they do it, why they're masquerading behind something. Who knows? Right. We know from Dream Quest that, uh, that Nirlathotep does appear as a black man, and we know it from Lovecraft's poem uh, Nirlathotep in yeah. the Fungi from Yugath that he appears as, as, a, as a black man. And so it's, it's not like this is the only story in which that appears. Yeah. And to connect Nirlathotep, the uh, trickster, the, the single great old one, the single one of the mythos deities that actually seem to have some human motivation for screwing with people right. to the legendary black man of the of the witch cult, that, that seems like an utterly logical step to me. And again, if he'd avoided making it, you'd, you'd have to wonder why why he would not do that completely reasonable thing. I agree with you, totally. Yeah. Lovecraft does this continuously throughout the things. He talks about how in Whisper in the Darkness, uh, people have been saying that, that the Mygo are um, uh, werewolves when they see them in Greece, or they say that they're uh, abominable snowmen and yeti when they see them in Tibet, but they're actually Mygo. This is the same thing. People say that Nirlathotep is Satan, and they say that these uh, these activities are worship of, of uh, pagan gods, when in fact what they are is mythos lore impinging on our reality, and that Nirlathotep is the thing that they're actually worshiping, whether mistakenly or in some cases you imagine uh, initiates like Keziah Mason by now would know that Nirlathotep is bigger than Satan, and that and that the whole thing is is bigger than you know, the, what what she might have been told when she was a kid. And of these figures that he's seeing in his dreams, by the way, they're they're growing closer and closer to him. I believe the more he has these dreams, because yeah. I seems to be coming out of the ceiling, presumably out of that alcove that's boarded up above his room. And this would lend some credence to what Ken said about uh, Brown Jacob possibly being her tutor. He seems to have all the mythos knowledge because he's the one whispering in Gilman's ear the words Azathoth, Nyarlathotep. I mean, he's the one that's saying this this type of thing. Right. So he continues to travel through these strange abysses, these twilight abysses that uh, are that's it's what he's calling the fourth dimension, right? Yeah. Where there's these spheroid bubbles and uh, polyhedrons of unknown colors, and everything's nutty. Now, around April 19th, 20th, there's this new development where he's traveling through this fourth dimension and then suddenly he's standing on a rocky hillside you know, bathed in this diffuse green light. Yeah, and he's in his, he's in his pajamas just hanging out, barefoot. And then crawling towards him is the old woman and the little furry thing. Well, basically, he's gone. He's they've taken him somewhere in space and time. He's yeah. not in that nether dimension in between spots. He's actually done what he was saying he could do in math class, which I like how he called math class. What he was doing in his uh... in math class. He was doing a math class. Yeah, he was doing it. He was doing an algebra one. Uh, but what he was talking about, where you could travel from one point to another, he's done this. But it's it's a very frightening thing when it happens, and before the the witch can reach him, he wakes up in his bed. They even they direct him back into the abyss. The two of them, the little little brown Jenkins, he get, gives him a little point and says, you know, hey, go back into the abyss, and he goes, and then he wakes up back in his room. So he skips school the next day after that. Yeah, he skips school. <laughs> so I got to go for a walk to clear my head, but he keeps having this. There's this unknown attraction, which is 
seems to be guiding him or pulling him as he walks that he's trying to avoid. He doesn't like it. Yes. So he kind of turns around and goes different ways. I like, there's a part where they, they referenced this earlier in the story that there's this desolate island that you can see from, of Arkham, right? In the middle yeah, it's of in the middle of the, the Miskatonic. This time as he passes it by, he looks out on that island and he sees an old woman out there kind of creeping towards him and the tall grass next to her is moving as if there's something crawling next to her. But before she can turn and look at him he gets the heck out of there he just runs he just doesn't want to see i mean obviously it's it's her well but he, but he doesn't wait to see if it's actually her he just runs because he's so scared and you know and you know where he runs off to the house he goes back to the house <laughs> like why would you do that that's so crazy yeah he goes home and and it, it was the southward pole. he does realize at some point that the the source of the pole wasn't any specific location it's in the it's in the sky yeah it's a point among the stars between Hydra and Argo Navis. Navis? Navis? I don't know. I'm no astronomer. But what is that? Is there significance to that? I, I think Lovecraft just sort of picked it because it sounded awesome. I mean, I <laughs> don't know if he is specifically trying to, you know, allude to some sort of thing that I'm not picking up on or if it's just because uh, Lovecraft was an astronomy nut. And so when he's mm. picking somewhere at random in the sky, he wants to pick somewhere that, that isn't going to be something that everyone's obviously going to say. It's not Antares. It's not Polaris. It's going to be some place, some utterly random place in the sky that happens to be the source of the tugging. That's one of these locations that's important. We just don't know about it because we haven't seen into into hyperspace. Yeah. Well, when he gets back to his house that time, too, the... Joe's there. Yeah, Joe tells him that he's been seeing a violet glow in his room. From underneath the door at night. There's like... Mm -hmm. the, which is the same color as Kaziah's witch light, supposedly, of, of legend. The purple light that... They, they see out in the woods or out by the white stone and things like that, that, this purple light. And again, this is one of those things that makes me really connect it with From Beyond, right? Because From Beyond is the ultraviolet. Ultraviolet, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, and, yeah. And the witch light in this is is this bright violet light. And I always imagine it being, you know, this sort of glowing magenta super uh, imposed on the black and white image that you, saw, that you see in, in From Beyond, the same sort of uh, light effect and that this is sort of Lovecraft's call back to that. Absolutely. I thought the same thing. So he continues to have these dreams. Yeah, even after his they told him we're seeing lights up in your room when you're sleeping. Uh-huh. You know, watch watch out. There's some ghosts up there. Yeah. But he says, I know how to deal with this. I'm gonna go up there and go to sleep again. <laughs> so he does. <laughs> and uh as he's sleeping <laughs> The violet light breaks out again, and he, you know, the witch shows up yeah. closer than ever. They go through the crazy bubble kaleidoscopic. Trippy, you know, 70s. Uh, 70s health class film strip. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, he winds up in a really crazy place, right? He sees three flaming discs, or three discs of flames, what they call it. And then beyond that is, a, like, a city. Mm -hmm. There's a city on there, and there's all this weird architecture and and there is well he starts to describe the stone that looks like an elder thing right he doesn't call it that but that's what it is i mean it fits the description perfectly so he's standing at this railing and along the top of the railing are these ornaments these little figurines which are figurines of elder things just like we might have little um uh, soldiers or goddesses or muses or something put along a balcony as as a little row of sculptures to break it up the, the interesting thing here is that the Elder Things aesthetic is completely different than it is in Mountains of Madness, where they're all into cyclopean slabs and, and, and bas-reliefs. This, they're almost like Victorians with the little filigree and the curlicues and all that stuff. But when I refer to Elder Things, I also call them the old ones in, in, at the Mountains of Madness. But those barrel-shaped with the stars on their head, mm -hmm. as heads, stars as head, those, those creatures. And he starts to hear this piping sound after this thing breaks off in his hand. And he's like, oh, I wonder what's making that piping sound. <laughs> 
Uh, oh, here comes somebody down the street. I wonder who it is. Oh, look, it's the old woman and Brown Jenkin and Elder Things. Ah! And then it kind of freaks him out so bad that he jumps out of bed and he's, you know, sweating and wakes up. Well, so wait a minute. What's going on there? Why are they in this city? And what, what, why is the witch consorting with the Elder Things? The Elder Things have no connection to Nyarlathotep and At the Mountains of Madness. Well, I believe this is another one of Joshi's complaints about the story is he's wondering why. It's never explained why these elder things show up or what the communication is all about, why why they're hanging out. I, I don't know, but I don't – personally, for me, I don't need to know. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's creepy. It's it's oh no, and it and it connects to that to that bigger cosmic viewpoint that Lovecraft has. That you know that this there's more going on. That there are you know humans aren't the only race that are out there. You know maybe Nyarlathotep came to to the Elder Things back millions and millions of years ago and got a few of them to go with him to Azathoth and sign the book. Well, my impression is that this planet is is either a home planet of the Elder Things or it's a planet that was settled by them like Earth was. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so the, the Elder Things on this planet have an entirely different culture from the Elder Things on our planet, just like, you know, humans in New Zealand have an entirely different culture from humans in China or wherever. So th- they're two totally different strains of the same species. Even our Elder Things are building Shoggoths, mm-hmm. and we know that Shoggoths are bad news and that they're such great, useful things for evil that the Deep Ones are building them in Innsmouth. So it's not like the Elder Things are a simple blameless innocence in all this uh, cosmic madness. Yeah. I can imagine even if these Elder Things are not Nyarlathotep worshippers, and again, there's certainly no reason to assume that they're not because Nyarlathotep can take a thousand forms. There's no reason to say he didn't take the form of a giant black Elder Thing and and mess with some Elder Thing mathematicians way back in the day. Mm -hmm. But I assume that the Elder Things have have an immense store of knowledge and lore that again resembles uh, sorcery that Kaziah Mason might be interested in learning and she would go to this planet and she has uh, members of some elder thing cult that she hooks up with uh-huh. and they take her to where they keep their, their giant elder thing archives and she can learn, you know, the secret name of Shubnigarath or she can learn how to build Shoggoths out of, of a wax figure and, a, and chicken blood or whatever it is that she right. wants to right, learn. Right, 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 yeah. And again, there's no reason that this is even happening in the present time. All of this stuff is, is un, unhinged in time and space. Yeah. He could have been going back and seeing Keziah Mason and, and Brown Jenkin at a place where they had gained this knowledge earlier. There's there's no connection. That's part of the dreamlike everything is, is bigger. There I mean, literally it's a story about relativity in in the sense that Gilman has no idea except his own observations about how anything is connected to anything. And he can't have that knowledge. That's the whole point of mm-hmm. of putting all these weird things that make no sense in is because this is how Lovecraft is saying this is what modern physics is, is nothing makes any sense. And we have this familiar little illusion around us. But the instant you do the hard math, you realize that this is just a consensual illusion that we're sort of making up so that we don't stumble over chairs all the time. And the rest of it is – it could be anything. It could be elder things. It could be giant trapezoidal bubble spaces. It could be anything. We don't know. Yeah. And all of these things are very plausible explanations. I, I have to agree. When Joshi said, you know, what's up with that? Why are there elder things in there? You know, these are these are not only plausible. They're really cool yeah. possibilities. But, but we all might be wrong. It might be some other thing. And that's what's so neat about it. Well, I'll tell you that I read this before I had any clue what elder things was. I certainly read this before I read At the Mountains of Madness. So I didn't have the benefit of knowing what the strange – things were because of that it was just more strange things like you mentioned the bubbles and the trapezoids and these things these run around now they show up in some place and there's just monsters there that's all i thought right (laughs) now at this point when he wakes up from this dream he gets up and takes another walk the the pull between hydra and argo is abated but he's got this infinitely north pull yeah 
and he, in order to avoid that, he goes the other direction. And this is where I thought that his name might have some significance because it says all around him stretch the bleak. He walks so far, he realizes he's out in the salt marshes. Yeah. And the narrow road ahead leads to Innsmouth, right? He says that their narrow road ahead led to Innsmouth, that ancient half-deserted town which Arkham people were so yeah. curiously unwilling to visit. I thought, this poor guy, he's being pulled around by the sky because of his mathematical experiments. And when he tries to get away from that, he winds up walking towards Innsmouth. It's as if there's this other pull that he has. <laughs> you know oh, what I mean? Okay. They, they, yeah, they, yeah. They, when he's avoiding that, he finds himself walking to what possibly could be his... I don't know if he's going to evolve the traits that his family might have because doesn't it skip some generations or some people turn out normal? But perhaps he also has this pull. Okay. Because he's still a college-age kid. You know, he wouldn't have gone through the change yet. So it's possible that he's feeling a pull to his homeland, to, to Innsmouth. That, that's true. I, never, I, when I, I, I knew they mentioned Innsmouth. I just thought it was Lovecraft kind of placing the geography of, of Arkham. I didn't actually... Well, that's very well it. what it could be. But, but I, no, but, that, but that is a good point, Chad, and, and also interesting. Things aren't going to end well for this guy no matter what. <laughs> Yeah, there's, yeah there's, there's, there's no happy ending for Walter Gilman. <laughs> this freaks him out, so he goes back to town, he goes to the library, and he browses aimlessly through some lighter magazines, which is the night, the only the only respite he gets in the... Uh, well, and then he gets some coffee, and then he goes yeah. and goes to a movie. Yeah, and watches it over and over. Yeah. And, and I love the bit where his friends are, like, um, uh, telling him he looks sunburned. Yeah. Right, because he's been on that on that planet with three suns standing <laughs> on the balcony. Right. And of course, he's, he's he's absorbed, you know, the Lord knows how much ultraviolet light and cosmic rays and whatever else from these crazy adventures. The notion that all of a sudden he's sunburned. I mean, that's Lovecraft just sort of tosses that in. He doesn't make a big deal out of it. No. But you read it and you're like, oh, man. And, and again, it's like, oh, there's a physical symptom to what so far you could sort of pretend is dreams yeah. and illusion. I mean, this is just a terrifically structured story. I, I love it. Yeah, that's it's great. I mean, for all he know, he could have radiation poisoning as well. You know, who, who knows? <laughs> that's right. Yeah, well, how, not. how bad it is, yeah. Well, finally, he, he does decide to go back home for some reason. About nine at night, he drifted homeward and stumbled into the ancient house. Joe Mazurowitz was whining unintelligible prayers, and Gilman hastened up to his own garret chamber without pausing to see if Elwood was in. It was when he turned on the feeble electric light that the shock came. At once he saw there was something on the table which did not belong there, and a second look left no room for doubt. Lying on its side, for it could not stand up alone, was the exotic spiky figure which in his monstrous dream he had broken off the fantastic balustrade. No detail was missing. The ridged, barrel-shaped center, the thin, radiating arms, the knobs at each end, and the flat, slightly outward-curving starfish arms spreading from those knobs, all were there. In the electric light, the color seemed to be a kind of iridescent gray veined with green, and Gilman could see, amidst his horror and bewilderment, that one of the knobs ended in a jagged break, corresponding to its former point of attachment to the dream railing. So it's the old, you pulled something out of your dreams act, yeah? Yeah. He's freaked out, but how did it get on the table? That's the question, you know, it's uh, how did it get here? I mean, he would have saw it when he left. It doesn't make any sense. So he goes down to the landlord and, and says, has anybody been up my room? And he goes, well, yeah, my wife was up there and she changed the sheets. And at that point I go, oh, wow, somebody changes his sheets when I didn't know that that happened. I guess when you're boarding places that they cleaned up your room for you. That's part of the deal. Yeah, I think he's getting meal service and everything here. That's awesome. That's great. <laughs> that doesn't happen anymore. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> so, so would you live in a crazily angled witch room if it meant you could get turned down? Yeah, service? somebody's going to my, clean my sheets for me and, and make my meals. Did, that would be amazing. But anyway, uh, so she, when she was cleaning his sheets, she found uh, in his bed this thing and put it on the table because she thought it was his. He obviously broke it off and 
traveled back through space and time and, and brought the thing with him. So it's physical proof that he is actually going to other places. Well, proof to you. He still doesn't buy it. He says, no, why not? He doesn't buy it. He says, I don't know where I got this Outre thing from. I've never seen it in any Arkham museums. I must have grabbed it when I was sleepwalking or something like that. And then he says at that point, you know what? Maybe I should see a nerve specialist. (laughs) (laughs) Sometimes. He does the thing here, which I like. Another horror movie or haunted house kind of thing where he sprinkles some flour on the floor. He wants to find out, you know, what's going on. Where is he traveling to at night? And he goes to bed. That's the thing, too. He goes to bed after all this is, has transpired. He just goes, well, okay, I'm, go- I'm, going- <laughs> I'm going back to sleep again in this house <laughs> after he puts down the-, the stuff. And then, of course, he has the dream again. He sees he sees the witch, and he sees Brown, and he sees someone else. This time, instead of going to the great city, he goes up to a windowless little space. And it's obviously the space above his room, which is sort of the witch lab or something. And, the, yeah, that's where he sees a tall, lean man of dead black coloration. Although he's not uh, African. I mean, he's, he looks like a white guy with black skin, right? They say that he's not, doesn't have Negroid features. No hair, no beard, very smooth, wearing a big, shapeless robe. And uh, he says he must have been shod since there was a clicking whenever he changed position. So you see how he's like at hooves for, for feet. Yes, right. Yes, I got that. I got that from that's well. <laughs> up on that. He has cloven, cloven feet, yeah. I wasn't bragging. <laughs> <laughs> I'm about to blow you guys' minds. I've been doing research for a week. First, I looked up the word shod. Follow along with me here. Just have the, the image of, this, of the copy of the book with the word hooves written in arrow pointing to the line and a star by it. Get ready, scholars. The black man gives him this, this book. Yeah, his yearbook. Yes, his yearbook, and he wants him to sign it. He wants him to sign his yearbook. <laughs> Stay cool, have a kick-ass summer. <laughs> Gilman, you know, signed his book, and then Brown Jenkins comes up and bites him, bites him on the wrist. Yeah, I think he's getting the blood for the signature. But then he wakes up. That's a, that's part of the whole witch legend, right? The, the women would go out into the woods and consort with the black man and sign his book. In blood. Right, that's, that's like part of the folklore. Yeah. So he wakes up, and his cuff is caked in dried blood. And so he thinks, oh, the rats must have came in and bit me when I was sleeping. I guess he's in some denial. It's the only way, when I was reading the story, I'm like, okay, there's something that's driving him. He needs to be doing this stuff. I mean, there's the blood on his wrist. There's the figurine. There is the the sunburn. All of these things, and he's still, a normal person would just run and just run and get away and never look back. Well, also, he is very keenly interested in figuring out if, if what he believes his theories are true. And he is ballsy enough that he moved into this room. I mean, clearly he wants to create some kind of effect or, or see something. And, you know, he's not going to run away. He, he moved in here for this, this purpose. Oh, man, but there's got to be some... I mean, just from when I was reading this, this is what I was, I was feeling, was that there has to be some bit of self-preservation that a person would have. But I guess he is just obsessed. He is obsessed with understanding the situation and the greater cosmology of the universe. You know, again, throughout the story, Lovecraft has um, says in every possible way that Gilman is trapped in this situation. I mean, he's he's held prisoner by these invisible tuggings. The the, the rats can get into his room no matter what he does. Um, it, right. it, it, it's clear that in the sort of the, the narrative context of the story that, that Gilman is already basically a dead man, that he has he has you know, worked out an equation to which there is only one solution. He doesn't know it right now because he's still in the process of going towards the end. But 
he's trapped first by his own obsession. Like you say, he, he rents a witch house yeah. attic. So it's obviously he's obsessed by his studies and then he's trapped in the in the in the tugging and you know, Brown Jenkin can can climb up to him in his dreams and nuzzle him. It's there, there's an awful lot of uh, spade work that Lovecraft lays to demonstrate that Gilman by now is really just enmeshed in the toils of, of this plot, and that uh, for whatever reason, Keziah Mason really wants to bring him to the throne of Azathoth and get him uh, and get him on side. So right. even if he you know he he ran back to his his hometown of Haverhill or moved to Pennsylvania to raise avocados or whatever it happens to be, you know, <laughs> you know that he's going to just start dreaming of, of of rat monsters again and that he's going to find himself in Arkham because he's fourth dimensionally walked there. Yeah. He he does he he doesn't control his own destinations now. So the notion that he could just, you know, go down to South Carolina and forget about all of this, I think at this point that 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 ship has sailed. Yeah, well, and and so this at this point in the story, he decides he's going to try and get some help, and he goes to Elwood. Mm-hmm. He, he goes to Elwood's room, and he kind of just breaks it down to him and all the things that have happened in the dreams, and he shows him the the little elder thing action figure, and yeah. uh, about the purple light, uh, and then in in Elwood says, "Yeah, I saw the purple light coming out of your out of your room as well." He's he's on side, he, you know, he's with him, you know, he's like, "Okay, you know, I'll help you out. What do you want to do?" And he's like, "Well, do you mind if I sleep in your room uh, instead of sleeping in my room?" And that's one of the first sensible things uh, I feel like he's doing is, is yeah. at least not sleeping in that same room at that point. So he moves down to Elwood's room and, and he and Elwood start taking the, the the collectible around to different museums and different professors to see if they can figure out what it is. And I think the landlord's even putting rat poison around. And and when he moves down to that room, the dreams stop as well. He stops having those dreams. Nobody knows exactly when they show this this the the elder thing railing ornament. Uh, nobody knows what it what it is. It, you know, it's it's not recognized. Also, they have a terrible cover story where they say, "Yeah, we found this in the garbage." That's their. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's right. In my, Absolutely. I imagine that maybe they brought a few other objects from the garbage just to make it more plausible. You know, <laughs> what do you make of this Capri Sun? <laughs> <laughs> the uh, but of course they don't know what what the figure is or what what it's made of. Yeah, strange metal that's made of something they can't recognize. A strange alloy. They have no idea what it is or what it could be. There's more hopelessness here too, though, because he moves down to that to Elwood's room. Everybody starts to people are seeing Brown Jenkin again suddenly, and there's sounds in the halls and on the stairs at night. These these things are looking for him. Which is that was actually the the scariest moment of the story for me, is that no matter where you go, you can't escape the haunting. Yeah. Ugh. And Elwood and, and Gilman are having, they're talking it over. It says they are drowsily discussing the mathematical studies. They talk about Keziah. They talk about, you know, Elwood, Elwood's a good ad, uh, ally, right? I mean, he actually thinks that what Gilman is working on is credible. Absolutely. I mean, he he's also a, a student of physics, and so he knows the stuff that he's talking about is, is legit. I mean, just like his professors are like, wow, mm-hmm. this is some groundbreaking stuff. So I think Elwood's probably almost a devotee of him in a way. And so he's yeah. really committed to, to helping him out. I mean, that's the impression I got. Sure. And they're talking, they're having the same conversation we've been having. They say, hey, well, why couldn't this interdimensional travel underlie the tales of broomstick rides or the familiars and the messengers and the intermediaries, these hybrids? Why couldn't this all be part of what works? They're sorting <laughs> it out. They're having this discussion. Now, the violet light catches up with him down in Elwood's apartment, though, yeah. right? On April 27th, a, f- a fresh rat hole appeared in Elwood's room. And when he sleeps there, he hears a scratching or gnawing, and he hears somebody fumbling at the latch. Uh-huh. And then suddenly the old woman and the, the small furry thing are in the room on the carpeted floor going towards him. The crone seizes Gilman by the shoulders, and they go out of bed and into empty space again. And then that's when uh, they go on a trip somewhere in Arkham, right? Yeah. 
He's out there to do some baby stealing. Yeah, he's part, he's part of the baby heist, yes. And this is just some sort of a anonymous back alley in Arkham where we, we assume that it's in Polish neighborhood or, or one of the poorer neighborhoods in Arkham. It's not a specific uh, landmark, per se. It's just a, a noisome alley. Yeah, because this is a, hur- a particularly bad thing. He's going up the back alley, he goes up the stairs, and then he hears this sort of strangled cry, and the witch is holding a form which she asks him to carry it and when she thrusts it out to him it freaks him out and he runs away and and that's what wakes him up and when he wakes up he's in his old room somehow he had gotten from elwood's room up to his own room and his feet are covered with mud and his throat is uh, bruised from where the black man has been strangling him you know and there's muddy prints on the floor of his room although they don't all the, they don't go all the way to the, the door out and there's a cool thing here i had actually forgotten until i was rereading the story this morning because he puts the powder on the floor and i didn't think it had much payoff but it actually does. There are no prints, right? That, that he hasn't been going out the door. Here, it's not actually necessarily in the pounder, but next to his muddy print in the room, there's some round markings, such as a legs of a table or, or a chair might make, except most of them tended to be divided into halves. Uh, so those- <laughs> Another piece of the mystery puzzle, Pfeiffer. That's right. The uh, the secret of the hooves is once more um, <laughs> revealing itself. <laughs> <laughs> there is a great... This earlier, doesn't Elwood say, yes, I, I did hear some footsteps up, up there. Some of them shod, some of them unshod. He actually... <laughs> <laughs> yes, he actually says that in the story. That's that's a good indication of run. I, I'm with you there. When somebody says, "I heard some shod footsteps," yeah, bye. <laughs> There's only two. It's either somebody with hooves or it's a Dutchman cavorting about with his little wooden shoes. And either thing, it could be a pirate with a peg leg. Again, bad. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah you don't want any pirate pirates with peg legs. Those are the worst kind of pirates because <laughs> they got nothing to lose. Exactly. They, except maybe the other leg. So this freaks him out and he moves on or he goes over down to Elwood to say, you know, oh, my God, I woke mm-hmm. up in the old room. Um, old Joe kind of meets him up there and says, why aren't you wearing that crucifix? Yeah, he says, you especially better be wearing this now because we heard a thin childish wail that was hastily choked off last night. That's probably not a good idea for you not to be wearing the crucifix when there's babies being strangled somewhere in the house. <laughs> <laughs> so he goes out for dessert at that point. Well, no, he, well, he goes out and uh, goes to class. He goes to school. Uh, but no, it is while he's looking at dessert that he catches a, an article in the paper about yes. a strange kidnapping the night before. Oh, and here's the name of that alley, Orn's Gangway. Orn is a significant name, isn't it? Orn is one of the um, uh, members of the uh, of the reanimating cult in Charles Dexter Ward. Jedediah Orn. Right. So the kidnapping was a, a, two, a two-year-old child, and the mother of the child claimed that she had seen Brown Jenkins. Yeah, she knew that the, the kid was in trouble. Actually, there's a great bit of story that gets thrown out here, too, where he says uh, children, you know, they've been taken away every year since this woman could remember. And her friend Pete Stowacki would not help because he wanted the child out of the way anyhow. Why is that? It's it's because Pete wants to get with Anastasia, yeah, and he doesn't want a kid around the place breaking the mood, right? Yeah, what a great detail. Yeah, yeah. Well, and and again, it's it's completely. I mean, it's completely true to to, to life. Uh, my my um, uh, my wife is doing some research into a uh, a woman who lived in Little Poland in Chicago who was a serial killer. Uh, she she would poison people, and among the people that she poisoned were uh, children of various um, uh, boyfriends and whatnot that she felt would be interfering with her romantic uh, goals. Whoa. And uh, one assumes also her financial goals. And so this sort of um, thing, obviously it makes it into the Chicago Tribune, it makes it into the Hearst Papers. It's a, it's a big part of the how can we let these Polish animals come live in America type, um, oh. um, type press. Lovecraft would have read this because obviously there's a big Polish uh, community in Providence at the time he's writing. Uh-huh. This is very much... 
this this is basically like a scene from you know from if they had cops in 1931 this is what they would have been showing all the time <laughs> right is you know some some boyfriend or, or or girlfriend wanting to poison the other one's kids so that they could uh, have an unobstructed run at uh, marriage right and and so this is this is you know ripped from the headlines uh, for Lovecraft and it's it's interesting because it's it's a genuine thing it does happen it's a real part of the sociology of the time but it so completely caters to all of Lovecraft's prejudices yeah. and even in this story where the poles are basically right about everything you know where yeah. your fix don't go out on well purchased night don't sleep in the witch attic what's wrong with you people uh-huh. um, they, they you know he calls the the woman clod like and um, uh, he he talks about Masarecki's uh, prayers as this sort of ceaseless keening and whining I mean it's just this this constant drumbeat uh, of of sort of alienation from from the Polish uh, working class of Arkham when in fact they're the only people who seem to have the faintest idea what's going on. I mean, we see a little bit more of that too um, later on with uh, Hunter in the Dark. Although by then they're they're almost um, purely heroic. The, the condescension is almost completely gone by Hunter yeah. by Hunter in the Dark. Oh, uh, poor Pete Stawaski. He just wanted a little action. Exactly. He's kind of like the Ronnie Dobbs of the of the nineteen twenties. <laughs> well, uh, the the there's a lot of drinking that happens in uh, the story as well. There's lots of. People who say, hey, "Look, I was drunk, but this is what I saw." That's what's in the paper here, right? The the really shocking part is some uh... the, some revelers said they saw a huge robed Negro, a little old woman in rags, and a young white guy in his night clothes <laughs> with a rat, <laughs> with a tame rat, with a tame rat. <laughs> and, you, and you know that when they told it to the Arkham advertiser, that the guy was like writing it down and saying, "Oh yeah, no, give me more details. Tell me more about the tame rat," <laughs> <laughs> because you know. Hilarious drunk guys see nonsense is, 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 you know, that's journalistic gold right there. Uh, these papers around Arkham love to report on stuff like that. At least whatever the story needs. <laughs> Here there is one sort of twitch in the story that I don't like so much where there's a repetitive thing that happens where he has full paragraphs where the character is just asking questions. Do, do yeah. you know what I mean? Where he says, had I gone through our sphere to points on guests and unimaginable, is this possible? To what extent could the laws of sanity apply to such a guy? There's a whole pair. Yes, yes, it is possible. It's exactly yes. what's happening, and we all know that. So why are we wasting print on these questions? I think Lovecraft is just trying to sort of pull out all the things that he put into the story to sort of signpost them to to let the reader know, you know, to let to let them build their own picture rather than trusting them to pull the details out as he's left them. It it isn't one of the strongest parts of the story, certainly. Well, as a result of all this you know, child kidnapping. Gilman does start wearing the uh, crucifix, right? Yeah. He drops yes. it under his shirt. Yeah. And it, it's funny, though. It does imply, and I guess this is obvious, he put it on and dropped it inside his shirt to humor the fellow. So clearly Gilman is not religious. No. He doesn't believe in the significance of these things. Late at night, he and Elwood are, are up drowsing in their chairs. Yeah. They're, well, they're, they're having a conversation. I mean, all those questions were them kind of posing posing to each other. Yeah. And, and they, it's May Eve now, right? The, yes. At this point, it is April 30th. This is it's, what everybody's been dreading. Yeah. And they finally, you know, they're just talking and sitting up and talking and talking until they finally fall asleep in their chairs. And that concludes the second part of our coverage of The Dreams in the Witch House with guest host Ken Height. I want to thank Mike Mann, our webmaster and genius. I also want to thank Dave Stidden, our amazing reader. Thank you, Dave. Our ransom for the reading of The Call of Cthulhu by Andrew Lehman is more than two-thirds of the way there. So if you're interested and wanting to hear that, please donate. Just go to the website. There's a little donate button. All donations go towards the ransom. So anybody that donates will add to that total. Tune in next week for our third and final part of our coverage of The Dreams of the Witch House with Chad Pfeiffer, Ken Height, and me, Chris Lackey. 
This has been the HP Lovecraft Literary Podcast at hppodcraft.com. HPPodcraft.com. Ah! Oh.